Hello everybody, Brett Stewart here. Just a quick reminder at the top of the program that Silver Screens and Politics is going to spoil the 1975 film The Wind and the Lion in this episode. If you're at all concerned about that, go ahead and watch the film and come on back and join us. Furthermore, if you'd like to follow along, next week we are going to be watching Field of Lost Shoes. See you then and enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. I am joined here, as always, for another episode of Silver Screens and Politics with my co-host, Dominic Chikoki. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Wonderful. Now, we did watch The Wind and the Lion, and first of all, I, I want to read the description, and then I want to hand it off to you, because you have done a wonderful job as the cinephile that you are picking these movies that we're watching, because I didn't know about, like, three-fourths of these movies on our list. I and didn't either, to be fair. Well, I'm so happy that you did the digging, because without that, we wouldn't have this wonderful bevy of films, and hopefully, uh, if you people, you people, you listeners, you people, uh, (laughs) but if you'd like to follow along, uh, hopefully, you can go ahead and do that. Again, we're watching The Wind and the Lion, so be sure to check that out if you'd like to see the film before hearing our discussion, but let's talk a little bit about the film. In the early 20th century Morocco, a Sharif kidnaps an American woman and her children, forcing President Theodore Roosevelt to send in forces to conduct a rescue mission. This was both directed and written by John Milius. Dom, why don't you go ahead and tell us why we're watching this film, why it's on our list. I was looking for different alternatives as to presents we could watch about and learn about and you know see how they represent them. And I came across this as like one of the few about Theodore Roosevelt. Okay. And so I have known John Milius from other films. Like he wrote the uh, first couple Dirty Harry movies. He's known for directing the Conan the Barbarian movie. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know about that. And that's like his big, his probably his biggest movie, I would say. Okay. He, he, he's known as kind of like the right wing of like the George Lucas generation. Beautiful. I love that. I, I hope that that is what is on his business card, <laughs> the right wing of the George Lucas generation. Because he also wrote Apocalypse Now. Oh, okay. So he knows like Coppola and all of them. Do you think him and like Mel Gibson and Clint Eastwood ever like go out to breakfast? Like brunch? Brunch? I don't know, but I would love to see that their collaboration movie. Oh my God. All right. Well, sorry. Continue. This is one of the only films that we uh, actually have that, that has Theodore Roosevelt in a significant capacity. Right, because there are other, like, there's a miniseries John Milius also did later on, but that's longer, you know, I don't know how you want to tackle longer forms of TV. Right, it's good that we actually have films on this show, I think. Right. Uh, And this is a film that kind of bounces between Roosevelt, where he currently is in the United States, which was actually filmed in Spain. Right. uh, Versus this Sharif, who is uh, uh, played by... Sean Connery and to be uh, and to be clear Roosevelt is a supporting role in this he is not like the big cheese of the movie right no the big cheese is most certainly Sean Connery who plays uh I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this name mm-hmm. uh Mulai Ahmed El Razuli I think Razuli sounds El right. Razuli 
I think Razuli is what it's supposed to be, right? I heard that all in the movie a lot. Right, that's what they kept saying in the movie. Okay, so, so at least that part of it is right. Uh, and I think I got Ahmed right. I don't uh, know. I yeah. But yeah, but anyway, this was a real person. This was based on an actual event that happened in May of 1904. This was right as uh, Roosevelt was running for re-election, which is in the film. Uh, and they took quite a bit of liberties with this, like ninety percent liberty. Like the like names, ninety percent li- like liberties. The, the the name Pedicaris is mostly the right name. It's a little different, even. Yeah, the original one was like Purdy Caris, so they took out the R. Yeah, that's a Greek. Fan. It was a Greek, it was an old uh, Greek guy. Yeah. and his son. Well, yeah, I was reading about the the guy, and it's kind of interesting in that the father of the guy who was kidnapped was like. He married into wealth. He was a wealthy American, basically. And then the Civil War came, and they're like, you know, I want to keep my money. I'm going to go back to Greece. Right. So the son, who became the Predicaris in the incident, technically was a U.S. citizen, but had renounced it to go back to Greece. That's interesting. Roosevelt went after them then. Considering. Because that's because Rizuli, I guess, assumed that he was an American citizen. And so he didn't know that he really wasn't. Oh, so this entire hostage situation, had it actually come to the point where he was exchanging hands, they could have found out that he wasn't even an American that he had. Right. And that was what Roosevelt was banking on was that, well, he doesn't know that. Oh, that's very interesting. Because what happened in real life is that Rizzoli demanded, uh, he demanded a $70,000 ransom and control of two of Morocco's wealthiest districts. Despite the cir- circumstances, uh, Purdy Karras be- came to admire and befriend Razuli, who pledged to protect his prisoner from any harm. Uh, uh, <laughs> that name, Purdy Karras or whatever, later said, I got so far as to say that I do not regret having been his prisoner for some time. He is not a bandit, not a murderer, but a patriot forced into acts to save his native soil and his people from the yoke of tyranny. The yoke of tyranny. That that would have been a good title. So in any case, it sounds like even this 60-year-old Greek man also had a little bit of of, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. And... it gets to a point where it's like, what is Stockholm Syndrome and what's just like realizing, yo, this guy isn't as bad as, you know, someone who's not in the situation would think. Because to, to preface this for our listeners, what happens is that this, this woman is essentially replaced into this role rather than a 60-year-old Greek man. And she has two kids with her instead of one son. And all three of them are, are uprooted in this wonderful, beautiful Moroccan estate. All their servants are killed. And, uh, and Razuli comes in with his bandits and kidnaps them under the idea that he can ransom them to Roosevelt. And what kind of happens is there's this there's this banter back and forth between Roosevelt and Rizzuli, even though they never actually meet one another, right. where both of them feel that they are the that they can be the the dominant force over the other, but they have this like warrior like respect of one another. And that's very clear very early on. And that's probably one of the main tenets of the movie that carries even to the end. It's that this warrior like respect must be appreciated and respected. Yeah, because one thing I said to you when when in the pre-show was, for me, one of the big overarching themes of this film is you have Razuli, who is talking about how there's no honor in having big guns that you need to wheel in, that or gadling guns or anything like that, that there's no honor in having all these, you know, giant military vessels that he believes that, you know, a man should fight with a sword in his hand and a, and a good rifle, a well-trained rifle, and that is something that is challenged throughout the entirety of the film because he feels that the way the Americans 
impose their, you know, their, their reign is very, uh, it doesn't connect well with what he sees as, as being an honorable soldier. And I would actually argue that if him and Roosevelt actually ever had have met, they probably would have seen eye to eye on that. Oh, very much because, um, Roosevelt is also in the, in the movie, his character is also kind of representing like a third path, I would say. And absolutely everything he does, like every action he takes is supposed to be like exceptional in that this is the American way, but I want this. For example, there's a scene when he shoots a bear and he has a press conference about the bear. <laughs> yeah. Very te- <laughs> we should also say he has a press conference in Yellowstone Park while sitting on top of the dead bear. And the reporters are like, are you going to have like the bear rug in the middle of the White House? And he's like, no, I want it to be stuffed and I want it to be in the Smithsonian because the grizzly bear is the finest of creatures and should be our symbol and not that what was it that vulturistic like like no it was um dandied vulture the eagle <laughs> dandied vulture beautiful and uh that's something i find really interesting about this film is that you're right there's a third path right there's like the militaristic america that that imposes its will upon morocco there is the uh there is the native warrior of of Razuli and what he feels is the right way to go about things and protect his people and then there is that american exceptionalism wrapped inside of like a very wise old man which wise is what, or kind of a little out there a little out there but that's what's great about it. that's what's great about teddy roosevelt in history in general is that he it's was so out there and i think this film does a great job with it because to go along with that with that bear they come to him and they show him all these sketches of how they're right. going to stuff his bear in the smithsonian mm-hmm. and uh, and he's like if you were a bear would you want to look like this would you want to look like a cowering bear and then he stands on the table and models how he wants the bear to be posed. While growling, at which point his daughter is like, yay, growl some more, dad. And like starts clapping and he's like, okay, daughter. And he starts growling again. Uh, it's everything I wanted out of a Teddy Roosevelt portrayal. Uh, who is the actor who portrays him? Brian Keith. He does a wonderful job. Yeah, I would say that's probably one of his most famous roles. He was also on some 60s TV shows. Okay. Uh, let's see. I had writ- written down. Okay. He was on Family Affair. And also Hardcastle and McCormick. Okay. So he was a he was a couple, you know, title roles here and there. He was, I guess, Hardcastle and Hardcastle and McCormick. That's a good legacy, is a really good portrayal of Teddy Roosevelt, because as we alluded to at the top of the program, there's not a lot of portrayals of Teddy in film. And it's like it has it's also the simplicity of like it looks enough like him. It, he really does, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it also shows some of the I don't want to say like like delicateness of Teddy Roosevelt, but there isn't another side of Teddy that he's kind of portraying because I love the scenes at, at what I assume was like Camp David, uh, which sure. is which, sure it's Camp David where Spanish Camp David. Yeah. Spanish Camp David since it was shot in, in Madrid. But uh, there's, it's so like quintessentially Teddy Roosevelt. He's like firing arrows and like getting bullseyes <laughs> and all the people around him are like, good shot, Mr. President. And then he's like literally like boxing with a sparring partner. And then he beats the crap out of the dude and lays him out. The boxing partner, by the way, was the stuntman. Yeah. Like interesting. The, one of the only stuntmen in the movie. Oh, that's so interesting. And there's an interesting story about the um, UK distribution, if you want to go into it real quick. Yeah, for well, real quick, I just want to mention that what I love about that that dichot- that showing of, of tough Americana man's man Teddy is that at the same time, there's also these scenes where he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm blind in my right eye, uh, which we apparently see at the beginning of the film, because apparently that happens to him when he gets punched out. But, uh, you know, there's just almost like, 
vulnerable side of him where he's like covering his eye in order to read and stuff like when he's reading Resoli's letter at the end of the film uh, and I love that part about it is that there's a little bit of both sides of Teddy it wasn't just one side of it mm-hmm. but uh, go on about the distribution so I guess in the UK there's certain laws about showing any situation where an animal can be harmed or children can be harmed I don't okay know. so in the scenes in certain scenes in this movie the horses fall down right I guess they have a problem with the horses falling down. Were they real horses? I would assume so. So Yeah, that could get a little dicey. Isn't it really easy for a horse to break their leg? Yes, but if the stuntman's doing it, I would assume they have safer ways of doing it, but I don't know. Yeah, one would assume, right. So for the UK DVD release, they asked, like, I mean, I guess for the VHS, they asked, can you cut that stuff out? And John Milius said no. <laughs> okay. And then separately, the stuntman, who was the boxing dude, Threatened to sue them if they tried. Wait, the boxing man threatened to sue the UK. The UK. <laughs> who's, whoever who's he suing? Whoever would like, like censor that thing and okay. if they tried to cut it. Wow. Because that's his work, and they're like, you know, I guess smearing him by taking out his work. I've never heard of a stuntman going to bat over his work. That's a first. I've never heard of that. It, I mean, more power to him if yeah. he feels that that is his representation of his of his repertoire of making horses fall down and he knows he did it right i wouldn't want my work censored either also there's some really great action scenes in this movie oh yeah uh it's it's a scene where i was i was recommending it to my mother because my mother was looking for like an action adventure movie to watch with her husband tonight and uh i recommended it to them because it's it's actiony and it's fun it's kind of like pre Raiders of the Lost Ark, but like right in the vein of like Romancing the Stone or Jewel of the Nile. Um, and but it's also like very tame. You never actually really see any blood. Uh, you never actually see anyone get like hurt. I mean, you see a little bit, but enough to feel it. Not a lot. Like there is there is one scene with like a decapitated head hanging uh, when he is leaving. When Razuli is leaving after first abducting the woman and her two kids, and she calls him a barbarian, mm-hmm. and he says, "No, a barbarian would have killed all four of those guys. I only killed two of them." Uh, and I can't remember what his reasoning was for killing two of them. I believe it was so, um, it wasn't like the, you're going to live the tell a tale type thing. I don't remember. I, I, I would think part of it's maybe to show his mercy. Yeah, the show is mercy. He had one line in this movie where I felt like in our contemporary political climate was a line that would not bode well. It was when he was first coming into this encampment that he was going to raid. And he says like, Allah, protect us from the infidel. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Also, can we talk about the whole Sean Connery whitewashing thing? Yeah. Yeah. So as everyone has surely recognized by now, this was, uh, an old Scottish Sean Connery, not even that old at that point. He was, he was a stallion. He was, he hadn't done that Mm. last James Bond movie, but yeah, but that wasn't even a real James Bond movie. That's true. Uh, what was it? Like never say die. Never say never again. Never say never again, which was like, couldn't even use the music. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he was, he was fit. He was in the prime of his Sean Connery hood, uh, and didn't change the accent. He just went, did not change the accent. He was an Arab man with a Scottish accent who was white, but he didn't like shy away from it either. Like he went, like he said the prayers and you know, wouldn't you rather have him do that though, than be like Robin Hood, like, uh, Kevin Costner and just completely butcher it. Cause I would. I mean, I guess it's a level thing. It's like, I would rather him not butcher it than butcher it, but I would also rather somebody who's accurate be in that role. 
I would too. But I mean, to give this film some credit in that regard, yes, he is whitewashed, but it seems like a lot of the actors around him, uh, they do they do have some Arab actors in it. There right. are some Middle Eastern, you know, uh, people portrayed in the film in lesser roles, uh, in the role of the Sultan, just not not the lead. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, John Milius did try. His first choice was Omar Sharif, who said no. Who said no. Okay. He's an Egyptian actor. Okay. So that's closer. And then his second choice was Anthony Quinn, who is Mexican. Okay. So I guess, I mean, that's not as close, but... Well, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the guy who played Jesus in Passion of the Christ, I think Mel Gibson did a very similar thing. I think that guy is actually Mexican. I Or maybe seen, Puerto Rican or something like that. Uh, it, I, I feel like... Mac, I feel like Gibson's a spiritual partner to this man <laughs> in some ways, at least in their politics and the way they make their movies. But uh, I mean, part of that has to do with the fact that there aren't a lot of popular actors who are Egyptian or um, Moroccan. Where, where was it? Where it took it place say? in Morocco. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's like Northern Africa. Right. So it, Egyptian's pretty close to that. Yeah. That's yeah. About, about as close as they could conceivably get. Yeah, because obviously we can have a bigger conversation about whitewashing where like it's it's kind of like systemic and also perpetual because you can uh, hire actors of color, but there's not enough actors of color because there aren't enough roles for them because those roles are whitewashed. And you can see how it just gets this like really cyclical circle. Right, and if um, it's a leading man like that, they want somebody who can draw bring people. Bring in the big bucks. And to do that, you need to be experienced in a known name. But if you don't have roles, they won't be known names except for one or two. And in regard to those big bucks, it did financially do well. It was a budget of $4.5 million, which is completely laughable nowadays. Keep in mind, this came out in 1975. Looks pretty good for a budget of $4.5 million. Uh, and it made $9.2 million. Uh, my understanding was that the marketing campaign... I'm thinking of a film I did on Geek Cinema last night. Never mind. But uh, I would not imagine a marketing campaign for this spent more than a million or two, probably. Probably not, but you know, as we should say, it was vastly undercut by the advent of Jaws. That yeah, right. That's what I was getting to. Is that is that this same exact uh, summer? This was released in the beginning of the summer of '75. Spielberg came in and stole the show with Jaws. So this was a financial success to a degree. I would I would assume by the time they cut out the marketing, by the time they paid off Connery, it probably wasn't a huge success. It was nominated for two Academy Awards. Uh, best original score and best sound mixing, and it was screened for President Gerald Ford and his staff, who reportedly loved it. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it sticking at a 75%, which is certainly respectable. It, by and large, the uh, critical consensus for this film is mostly positive. Okay, I have a question for you. Yeah. What did you think of the score? I did not realize that the score was like notable until this moment, apparently. Apparently it was. I d- it didn't even click with me that there was a really notable score. When I first heard it, I'm kind of like, oh, this is decent, but I don't know if I understand the hype about it. It's not particularly Yeah, unique. I don't know how I feel about that, because when I think of a great score, and I look at it from a, from a film or a television lover perspective, and I also look at it from a musical perspective, uh, I want something that when I'm done with it, the score is as poignant to me as the film was or the television show was. Like Lawrence of Arabia. Right. Which is like the other comparison to make to this movie. Right. Or like, for example, more recently, uh, last summer, the score that blew my mind and I ended up buying just the score was Stranger Things. Because for Stranger Things, I left that show and I felt as attached to that 
uh, story as I did to the music within it. And the music within it was very well placed within it, but it was so uh, interesting and creative, and I love that about it. So that's what made it a great score for me. With this, uh, I'm it's, it was cool. <laughs> it was cool. What's uh, interesting, nothing to, memorable. What's interesting to me is that it's Jerry Goldsmith, who is a well-known composer, died about uh, thirteen or so years ago. But can I just read some other titles he scored? Absolutely. He has also scored after this: Logan's Run, Star Trek, uh, Logan's Run. <laughs> Poltergeist, Rambo, you know, part one, part two, Gremlins, the Twilight Zone movie, and some of the episodes, Alien. So he's a guy that's been around. I Wow, he went from Logan's Run to Alien. I mean, I lo, first of all, Logan's Run actually has a really cool score. It's like, it, it was like, not to go down a Logan's Run rabbit hole, but the way that film is scored is it's kind of like, it has like the dee do dee do like electronical type style of like what they assume the future would be like, but it doesn't do it in a terribly kitschy way. It's interesting that I feel like this is considered one of his best scores, but all these other show, all these other movies have come since then. I would argue have been better. I would too. Yeah. Especially like alien aliens got a great score. Like he scored star Trek movies through nemesis. Yeah. Even like, uh, I don't know Star, Star Trek chronology. Is that is that before or after Space Whales? I think that was like the... the Space Whales is, is the fourth one, I believe, or the fifth is, one. I think it was like the sixth or seventh one. It was like the one with Tom Hardy before he was Tom Hardy. So he did Space Whales? I think so. Yes, Space Whales. I believe that it's the voyage home. I think that's number four. I don't know, man. <laughs> Are you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's been a long time. Okay, <laughs> we're going down a little bit of a rabbit hole, listeners. <laughs> Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home is where the entire cast of the Enterprise time travels back to present day 1980s oh, yeah, and okay. steals a, a a whale, steals whales. So the entire film is based about around space whales. So if this man scored that, yes. I, I love him dearly. Yes. That's wonderful. I'm so happy. Uh, this is a film that was reissued on Blu-ray in the Warner Archive collection. They have not reissued all of their stuff within it, so certainly they felt like this was something that was worth reissuing in that collection. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's in the Criterion Collection, which I don't fully understand the Criterion Collection. I'm not sure if it is, but the if, to explain the Criterion Collection, I guess, is that the Criterion Collection is, I would guess you say, an, not elitist, but basically elitist, collection of like yeah well they like it's they, not pretentious it's kind of like these are the most important movies of the world but then they stick a stamp on it and charge twenty dollars more yeah but i mean <laughs> i guess it's like they they remaster them they make that's sure true. they're that's consistently remastered they, they you're find, right it's not in it my bad it's in the warner archive collection and only that okay but yeah the, the criterion collection you know remasters these movies finds all of the trailers and little extras Oh, yeah, that's cool. And tries I, to give you the best experience that you can for these obscure movies. That's cool. I appreciate that. Uh, I like how on Wikipedia, if you scroll down to the very bottom of The Wind and the Lion, it says, see also, whitewashing in film. <laughs> it's a pretty blatant example. It totally is. I mean, short of, uh, what's his name, uh, Mickey Rooney, short of like Asian Mickey Rooney, yeah. this is up there. Uh, Mickey up Rooney, there. Breakfast at Tiffany's, right. uh, John Wayne's Genghis Khan, yep. and this uh more recently uh who was um <laughs> great podcasting here more recently we have we have Matt Damon in the the great wall or whatever that is uh even though i think they're going to explain why he's white i would hope i, I guess. guess i don't white know white men were there I, I guess 
And uh, but they're fighting monsters, so it's okay. Or like Gods of Egypt. That's a good example. Yeah, Gods of Egypt. That, that's a great example. That was like that was like white on white. I was like I was like white white. That was like. That what was is that white, white, white? What is that white bread that you can get? That's wonder, awful. Wonder, yeah, wonder. And you think it's great when you're a kid, and then like you have nostalgia on the grocery store, and you have this moment. Maybe I'm just explaining what's happened to me. And you sit there at the wonder bread, and you're like, "This is my moment." And you buy the wonder bread for like eighty five cents, and you go outside and you open it up, and you have it, and you think you're gonna have all these wonderful memories of your childhood, drinking Sunny D and shipping, you know, walking down lakes and fishing with your dad and all that stuff, and then it's just sadness. Just sadness and like your cholesterol rising. <laughs> I love this image of you just in the parking lot opening up the package, <laughs> stuffing your face of bread. And then just have like a sadness overcome me. Like, like a Melania also, Trump, just like my entire body just like shrinks. Also, like nothing to drink, just this dry bread <laughs> in your mouth, just chewing it. And then you just sit at the edge of the car and just pass it all out to the uh, to the oncoming pigeons. And you're just crying also. Oh man, this is getting too autobiographical. No, in <laughs> uh, any what but, brought us down? Oh yeah, whiteness brought us down that rabbit hole. It's very white. The funny thing about Gods of Egypt is that it's directed by an Egyptian Australian director. Oh, what happened there? What 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 the hell happened there? Uh, <laughs> in any case, back to the wind and the lion. One of my favorite parts of this movie, and I wanted to talk a little bit about it, and I'm going to let you talk about it so I can Google it. <laughs> All right, is sure. the the letter that Razuli sends to Teddy Roosevelt at the very end of the movie. I hope you didn't expect me to write down the text. <laughs> no, that's why I'm going to Google it okay. while you're talking. <laughs> I would love your thoughts on that because that was a really like powerful scene to me. I mean, it's kind of that kind of a actualization of that warrior kind of respect. Uh, I'm going to send you a letter and you're going to, you know, it's going to be a thing where we respect each other over this ransom thing. Over this ransom thing. <laughs> Even though... Like, I, I wish that was the end of the letter. We're going to respect <laughs> each other over this ransom thing. And it's, But it's like, you know, everyone else on Teddy Roosevelt's side is like, oh, we should just like kill him and just save her. Whereas he doesn't want to just do that. He, like, that letter is kind of like the actualization of their relationship between each other, despite having never met. Exactly. Here it is right here. You are... This is uh, Razuli 2 president roosevelt is it the real one or the movie one this is the movie one i couldn't find the real one like i don't think there actually was a letter no there i don't think there was but there is like quotes that he resolutely wrote that right about it. roosevelt so you are like the wind and i like the lion you form the tempest the sand stings my eyes and the ground is parched i roar in defiance but you do not hear but between us there is a difference i like the lion must remain in my place while you like the wind will never know yours. Man, take a shots across the bow there at the end. <laughs> I feel like T Teddy Roosevelt just had an existential crisis after reading this letter. And you just like see it get thrown out the White House window. Who am I? In the background. I mean, in some ways it does sound a little bit like not I mean, I don't know how you would say it. Kind of insulting, but but it, it also can read very like like I understand the difference between us. Because you could actually argue that that's like we're going to get like deeply prophetic here, <laughs> but the, if you want to look at this metaphor, it almost makes sense. Like he was the lion. He was resolute. He knew his place and he was going to fight for his place and stay in his place until he died. Right. And then uh, Roosevelt and, and this, you know, uh, this conquesting image of America 
kind of was like the wind. They're just kind of like sweeping over the globe and they never really had one place to call their own because even when you go back home to the U.S., there's always constant turmoil and conflict. Oh, for sure. So I think the idea of Americans being everywhere but nowhere, but having, you know, every place be theirs, but they really never know uh, where their place is or why is actually really profound. I mean, I I, I would say I would agree, but I think part of it depends on how Teddy Roosevelt not only can like objectively look at himself and his country, but also like accept that. Right. Yeah, I think he does. But like to get a letter like that, it really depends on who you are as a person. Yeah. And it takes somebody who is basically like a warrior, like they portray him to, I guess, understand that and not throw like a hissy fit because <laughs> they just got in a really bad, like they're <laughs> writing letters back and you forth. don't know your place. I know my place. I know my place, bitch. Come to I the will U.S. Be, I will become your place. <laughs> uh, now, Razuli, I believe, lived... I was going to say he lived a long and happy life, but he died in April of 1925 after being captured and imprisoned by his rival. So That's like a good 20 years beyond. That's true. He was considered by many, and this is in the film as well, to be the last of the Barbary pirates. And that, again, ties into what I was talking about, where it is this this dying culture, this dying art of warfare, this dying, um, you know, culture of respect and and, uh, and, and integrity that these, ironically, is the pirates, ironically. But uh, he is the last of this, you know, dying species. And, and Roosevelt acknowledges that in the film, which made it even more interesting to me because... That relationship between the two is just completely fascinating to me, even though they never met. It's funny that we focus on this, but we haven't actually talked about the movie. Like, yeah. Like, so, what happens in the movie? Okay. So, uh, do you want to give a little bit of a synopsis after this woman and chi- children, uh, <laughs> children? Uh, so, it's like there's a woman, okay. and there's a daughter, and then there's Baron Trump. And they're Okay. All- to be fair, the woman is played by Candace Bergen, who is Murphy Brown to a lot of people. Okay. And I would say this is probably one of her more famous roles, aside from Murphy Brown. And she is, I mean, they kind of play with her being the damsel in distress and that she is kidnapped. But her whole thing is that she will not go down without a fight. Exactly. Yeah. And the whole movie is kind of like her constantly just being like, oh, I'm not going to just take this line down. I'm going to fight back. And she fights back. And she has scenes where she collects her kids. And it's like, they're asleep. Let's go. Yeah. And her kids are like complaining about it. And she's like... I can't remember. She had a great line where she was like, uh, it's not always going to be the most opportune time for you personally for us to escape. Right. And it's like Roosevelt's trying to get them, but she's also trying to escape with her children alive. And that is so refreshing. Even Instead now. of having just having her a weird damsel in distress type thing. Exactly. With kids. Where it's like she sees the moment to escape and she will take it. Now, she does escape and and is immediately recaptured. Well, to be fair, there was a great number of people. Right, true. And Razuli basically has to save her from an even bigger crowd. Yeah, and he, and he really goes like balls to the wall with these guys and just annihilates them single-handedly. He shows up and like starts fire. He starts like shooting at them from the top of a mountain <laughs> with a with like a 19, 1904 rifle. There's no way in hell he could have hit those people. I mean, it's probably not even a 1904 rifle, honestly. No, it's probably way older. You're right. Uh, like the Civil War era rifle, uh, and he's just like marksmanning these dudes down, and then he goes down there and pulls out the the giant, you know, sword set on a beach, even on a beach. Even... It was just majestic. Yeah. It was just Sean Connery, just you know, going to town, uh, and 
Ultimately, he recaptures uh, this woman and her children, and there starts to be a bond formed between the two, which, as we mentioned at the top of the program, is probably somewhat similar to the bond that was formed between the old Greek guy and his son and Razuli in real life. Right. Where, as you mentioned, and I think this is a really interesting idea I never thought of, is where does that line cross from being like uh, Stockholm Syndrome to being we genuinely see where this guy is coming from and we think he's in the right and, you know, because that's kind of where they end up. Because I feel like Stockholm Syndrome, I, I don't know the specifics personally, but I feel like it is so misunderstood as a general concept. That any situation where somebody is kidnapped automatically, oh, it's Stockholm syndrome. They agree with the kidnapper. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, can't, can't take them seriously because they have this illness. And also, and also I think Stockholm syndrome might come. I feel like we're getting, we should like web empty this or something. (laughs) I'm sure that could help us. Uh, But usually I think when you have like Stockholm syndrome, I feel like you're thinking against your best interest in some way. And this is, yeah, it's more for cases of like, this person is holding you like at gunpoint gun against point. your will. Right. Like there is no reason for you to be with this person. Like there's no but ideology you are for some weird ethereal reason. There's no ideology. There's no like greater purpose. It's exactly. more like, yeah. And with this, uh, Razuli tells them pretty early on, like, I have no intention of hurting you. Well, I guess not early on. He does it at his house, which is like three, four scenes into them. After being killing abducted. everyone, after killing other people. After killing all the people, yeah, he does say, uh, there's this great scene, there's a precursor to this scene where he asks her if, if she plays checkers, and she's like, no, I play chess. Even better. Even better. And uh, and then they play chess together, and then she asks him, you know, what are you going to do if this doesn't pan out? What are you going to do if Roosevelt doesn't pay you? You don't get the territory you want. And he says, uh, you know, I'm going to play chess with you one more time, and then I'm going to see you home safely. Um, which is such a cool part of his character. That was such a great scene. See, that's so funny to me because I, because I'm in film school. So I feel like if I were to present that, the teacher would be like, then what are the stakes? What's the whole point then? Because if it's just like, oh, I'm just going to let you go anyway. There, though, there's no, there's no reason for her stay. Do you think part of that is just because Seanery, Seanery, Seanery is so good in this role. He's so charismatic. He is so quintessentially Sean Connery that it doesn't matter if there's anything at stake. You just love the fact that he's there. I, I think also the fact that it's deeper than that, though. It's like she like, how can she like get away with that unless she's being rescued? Because she's on the other side of the world. Yeah. And the Rizuli is the only real person between her and bandits. Sure, sure. And so it's like there are there are no stakes technically in that it's kind of a ruse to get the money, right? But I, I mean I'm I'm kind of criticizing my film school um, learning in that they wouldn't see the deeper meaning in that. I think that's yeah. more complex and more appreciated than like I guess I'm going to kill you because I don't get money. Oh yeah, absolutely, and it layers his character because the more you go into this film the more sympathy and understanding you have of the Razuli and the fact that he is trying to maintain his culture and his people, and he feels that's being stripped away from him increasingly by these rather hostile Western powers. And that's a that's a theme and a plight that you can apply to a, a variety of settings and people. And because it starts humanizing his character more and more with scenes like that, it gives him depth rather than just being this bandit who kidnaps them. Which makes it better written and shows more how John Milius can create character and be a good director. Absolutely, yeah. I this like, is 
it's, it's an anomaly really for Hollywood to produce like right wing artists like Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson, John Milius. But yeah, when they are good, they, pre- they can present movies that a lot of people who are more liberal would not think of and would present situations that they would probably more moralize. Yeah. In fact, I would actually argue as, as someone, uh, as a film film goer who doesn't necessarily agree with all of his ideologies, uh, Mel Gibson's probably, if not one of my favorite directors, he might be my favorite. And I know that he butchers historical accuracy, and I know all these different things he does, but I find myself captivated by his movies. I love Braveheart to death. I thought the passion was so well done. I I think the the peculiar nature of like Apocalypto or whatever it is is very bizarre to me, and I love that about it. And uh, and he is one of those guys who is so far right wing that he's really just finally kind of getting out of that underneath that. Well, and it wasn't just his right wingness. It was also like calling a cop sugar tits and, <laughs> uh, and, and getting arrested things. for a D right. And getting arrested for a DUI. Uh, so but like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a more, I'm a more liberal person, mm-hmm. I would say, but like, there's something to appreciate where I want to talk about the end. And now in the end, um, the, Marines come to Madrid to get uh what what do they call her? I forget how they change the name. Pedicaris and her yeah, children. Right. And also the Germans are there, I guess, to help out. Right. And they are under the suspicion that they're gonna just gonna kill Rizuli. So um Pedicaris and her children kind of take the Marine commander hostage. Yeah. Like First of all, the, scenes, the scene starts with her asking, son, do you have your dagger? Which was given to him by Razuli. And then, like, they're like, oh, I need, I need, we need some water. And then they take the guy hostage. And then she has her kids collect all the guns. Yeah. And they, like, point him at the Marines. And they're like, we're going we're gonna to save him. Which is so uncharacteristic of people in that role in that kind of film. But it's so interesting because a lot of movies, it's like, well, we can't have the children in any sort of danger. You know, the woman has to be, you know, passive and, you know, a damsel. And it's like the difference here is so nice where the kids are doing things. The main woman protagonist is doing things. Right. Absolutely. And they're like, they're trying to save themselves. And it's kind of that self-fulfillment, self-like looking out for that I think is a very conservative idea, but it works really well in this context. Absolutely, definitely. And that's one of my favorite scenes in the film. Uh, and I love that when they hold those Marines up at, up at gunpoint, there's just this really weird switch where the Marines are like, you know, we kind of agree with you. And then they give them back all the guns. And then they go fight the Germans. Right. And then they go fight the Germans. Uh, <laughs> which they'd be doing a lot in the coming century. Yeah, that's... Uh, a couple <laughs> things I do want to mention... Uh, the film's title was loosely inspired by a letter that Razuli sent to a Spanish military official in 1913. Uh, 1913. 1913 Man. 8. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in it, he stated, you and I are the tempest, you are the furious wind, and I am the sea. So a little bit of that letter is actually true. It just wasn't ever written uh, to Teddy Roosevelt. Also, Connery was so impressed by John Milius that he actually requested his services as a script doctor for Hunt of the Red October. Ironically, Emilius talked about how he didn't like Candisburg and Orshan Connery. I read about that. Yeah. In fact, I read multiple accounts of people who worked on this film. Uh, quote, Sean Connery was sour and dour. And that Candice Bergen just wanted to look pretty. Right. That's what they were saying. So it's interesting how Sean Connery comes away with this respect. 
and it's not a two-way street. Maybe that's almost a good thing because I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to spin this in an artistic way, but I actually do think that it, that if there was some sort of disconnect between uh, trying to wrangle this guy, maybe Connery appreciated that this guy was pushing him really hard and in a certain maybe. direction, because and maybe that guy was frustrated by it, but Connery came out of that right feeling better about it it's almost like i i know coaches or professors not really professors but i've i've had coaches in the past when i the brief stint of my of my <laughs> of my sports career in high school where uh i had they were frustrated by me and trying to push me to go harder right and later i had a lot of respect for them for doing it and I think Hunt for October was like 90 or so. So that was yeah. past the prime of John Milius's career where he probably needed more of that work. Exactly. Like, I would say he probably petered out around 84 with Red Dawn. Yeah. And yeah. Like the most significant things he's done since then are writing for like the home front video game and also Medal of Honor European Assault. Uh, like that's kind of home front that's those are those have been his outputs since like the 21st century that's a bummer (laughs) i have i have the home front book i mean i'm kind of curious to read it there's a book on home front yeah so it's based on a book no it's like the book was inspired by the game oh that's even written by john milius and some other dude really yeah oh now i wow interesting we're learning all sorts of things today uh (laughs) as we start to wrap up is there anything else that you want to talk about with the wind and the lion? It's interesting how I would compare it to Lawrence of Arabia and like normally you would think, Oh, it's kind of a ripoff in a way. It's about like these white people in the desert learning about the cultures of sure. the desert and sympathizing with them, trying to help them, but they could not be more different. Oh yeah, absolutely. And part of me wants to think, oh, Lawrence of Arabia is popular, so let's have another one like that. And maybe that's why they financed it. Because as John Milius said, initially, no one wanted to make a movie about Arabs and Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I could see that. So I guess they're like, well, that one was really well known. And it's just like... They ended up being entirely different beasts. You're right. And it's interesting to me that that, that, that it exists. That is very interesting. Uh one thing that I took out of this film uh, and to align it with contemporary politics was the scene where Roosevelt is standing on the back of a wagon and he's and he's yelling to it to his to his uh, voters about how uh, nobody messes with Americans abroad. We're going to get this chic and we are going to tear him down. And, you know, this long rambling about about how. Oh, yes. One thing I wanted to mention really quick about mm-hmm. that was I think it's where he's on the train, right? Uh, yeah, he's on the back of the train. And he basically says, we want her alive or Razuli dead. Yeah. And in real life, he made that statement. Did he really? And that was what made him popular with the Republicans. Beautiful. Then that ties even more into what I'm and about And that's to talk what about. helped him get reelected because they were not excited about him until that moment. Great. Then that ties even more into what I want to talk about right here because the rhetoric that he was using on the back of that train... Uh, it's very similar to Donald Trump's about about the Middle East. It's very, very similar. We are America. We are number one. Uh, we're not going to stand for anyone messing with us abroad, and we're going to take you down and leave you no place to hide. But I guess wrapped in a different personality, it sounds better. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, imagine... It, it, imagine does, it does sound way better with Teddy Roosevelt. Imagine Donald Trump talking about the virtues of a grizzly bear. Oh, my God. I don't think he could. I don't. I don't... But just imagine him trying to... And like it would seem so off-putting and odd. 
Like yeah, that's, well, that's because you know about a bear now. Yeah, because I mean, Teddy Roosevelt will always be go down in history as this as this enigma of a president that was as eloquent as he was man's man, which you don't see a lot, right? And it's like it's kind of the message; it has to be wrapped in the right package, right? In larger hands, <laughs> and also you know, do you, people understand kind of the intent behind what that means? It can sound very different from one person to the next. And yeah, it's the same words. And I, but I found that really interesting because I thought that like that read like one of Trump's stump speeches uh, during his campaign. Uh, was it's that way better than any of them. Way better. Uh, like just it, on a written level. On a written level, it did use words that had more than three syllables. So yeah, um, it was certainly at a higher reading level than what Trump typically tends to uh, gravitate toward. But yeah, the rhetoric is like... Like, is it really that different? Like, it's, it's it's not. It's really not. Yeah, yeah. It's it, basically we've had these problems, whether it be with with uh, people in Arab nations or elsewhere. Uh, that American, we're gonna destroy, we're gonna destroy you. <laughs> you know, we're gonna bomb the shit out of you, as as Trump very eloquently said, uh, in one of his press conferences at the beginning of the campaign. So, where do you think John Milius's heart lies in this movie? Does he agree with what Teddy Roosevelt was doing? Does he agree with what? That's a great question. Does he agree what with you what? Think? What do you I'm going to turn this around on you first to <laughs> pick, pick your brain. I think he has a lot of respect for Teddy Roosevelt. He did a miniseries on him as well. Right. So I think as a fan of him, he probably liked the way he said those things. I agree. But I also think, because he's also made um, projects about like Geronimo and more, I guess, minorities who have been historically abused by white people Mm -hmm. he has sort of a respect for arab nations and you know they have americans he certainly romanticizes it yeah so i get. i think it's kind of a mixture of like i love what america does but i also have a respect for these other cultures because i am a person who reads and writes and does stuff for a living yeah absolutely i I think that's like the viewpoint of an artist yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, he, he really romanticizes the the uh the character of Razuli and also the kind of the culture he comes from and the way he talks and the way he speaks and the way he thinks. It's all it's all it's He it's, tries to present him as an honorable person. Exactly. Exactly. Which I don't know if somebody who's more conservative today in today's culture would focus on. Exactly. That's a that's a great point. Uh, this was a film that, by and large, I really enjoyed it. I was a little bit worried going into a two-hour film from 1975 that I was going to wish it was 90 minutes. Starring um, Sean Connery as an Arab person. Right. I, I have had a lot of instances over on the Geek Cinema Society podcast where we have an older film, and it just goes way longer than it needed to. Also, and, my um my recommendations for our movie nights never really go well. So <laughs> that's true. You have you've had some bad recommendations. It's okay. I've had some bad ones too. But yeah, this one I was I was swept up in it. I, I sat down on my couch this afternoon and I watched it from beginning to end, and I and I was really into it. I it's something I would own. It's something I would revisit from time to time. Maybe not once a year, but every couple of years I'd I'd plop it in the Blu-ray player, or 4K player coming up in a couple of years. <laughs> um, yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed it. What about you? I enjoyed it as well. I think if I were to rewatch it, it would be to kind of have that reminder that there are these story formulas and there's historical formulas that work, but you can always change things up and still be successful with it. Like, I, I, I am still blown away by the whole, you know, take these Marines hostage. We're going to save the dude. It's a great Children, scene. get the guns. <laughs> it's a great scene. You're right. You're absolutely right. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Right. Totally awesome. Uh, 
It's a great movie. Uh, we, I, I, I would recommend it. Would you recommend it? Yes, I would. So it gets two stamps of approval here on Silver Screens and Politics. That's going to do it for us. My name's Brett Stewart, and of course, I am always joined by Dominic Chikoki. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, where can people find you online? What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at D-A Chikoki, or at D-A-C-I-C-H-O-C-K-I. Great. And if you want to find the show, you can find it at TiltingWindmillStudios.com slash Silver Screens. You can also find it on Facebook and on Twitter. Just search Silver Screens and Politics. And furthermore, if you'd like to email the show to give us feedback, to let us know if there's a film we should be watching, you can email us at SilverScreens at TiltingWindmillStudios.com. We would also definitely appreciate it if you enjoy the show. Go ahead and leave a review on Stitcher or iTunes, especially that latter one. That is how more people discover the show. It's how we build our community. We would really appreciate hearing feedback from you, whatever it may be. You can leave that in star form over on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at RiversRubin and at BrettDavidStewart.com. Dominic, what are we going to be watching next week? I believe it's called Field of Lost Shoes. And what is that about? It's a Civil War movie, and Ulysses S. Grant is in it in some capacity, and that's why I chose that one. Sweet. Well, we'll be back soon attempting to find people's shoes. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.